Welcome to the Yes Collective podcast. The Yes Collective is an emotional health studio run by the best therapists and psychologists around. Our team focuses on cutting edge approaches like internal family systems, somatic therapies, authentic relating, and trauma-informed experiential group practices. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook to learn more. I'm Justin Wilford, PhD, Director of Content and co-founder of Yes Collective. And each week I join my host, Jenny Walters, licensed therapist and co-CEO of Yes Collective to bring you the most amazing cutting edge therapists, psychologists, coaches, and other leaders in emotional health. Thanks so much for joining us and be sure to subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts. Welcome to the Yes Collective podcast. We are thrilled to welcome the accomplished entertainment executive turned mental health advocate and best-selling author, Tara Schuster. She just released Glow in the Effing Dark, Simple Practices to Heal Your Soul from Someone Who Learned the Hard Way. It's an amazing memoir slash emotional healing guide. It's really beautiful and powerful, and you don't need to take our word for it. It's got blurbs from Glennon Doyle, Chelsea Handler, Dick Schwartz, the creator of IFS, and many others. It's really remarkable, so check it out today. In February 2020, Tara released her first book titled Buy Yourself the Effing Lilies and Other Rituals to Fix Your Life from Someone Who Has Been There. So this book was a runaway hit. It was the finalist for a bunch of awards and it got on a bunch of best of the year lists. A really awesome book as well. Previously, Hara served as vice president of talent and development at Comedy Central, where she was the executive in charge of one of our favorite shows of all time, Key and Peel. So she has done it all. She's amazing. We are so lucky to have her on. And in this episode, we talked to Tara about what it was like to reveal so many intimate details about her life so freely in her books, what it actually means to glow in the effing dark, how emotional healing has transformed her dating life, and of course, the most important thing, we get into her drama-infused stint as a bartender on the Vanderpump Rules after show. So if you know what this is, you've ever heard about Vanderpump Rules, I, I had not, uh, but uh, my co-host, Jenny Walters, is a fan. So um, if you're into this stuff, then you're not going to want to miss this one. So without further ado, here is the wonderful, truly magical R. Schuster. Good. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. All right, Tara, we are just going to dive in. I know that you're really into IFS from, from your book, Internal Family Systems. We talk about it on the podcast quite a bit. And so I'm curious if we could start by taking a deep breath and just check in with what parts are most alive and active in this moment. And then maybe we can just speak for our parts. And maybe we can just kick it off like that. Well, so I'll start. And I just, the biggest part is this performer part that is on. It's like we are recording a podcast and now it feels like it's on stage and it now needs to do some tap dancing. And it's looking now at the audience waiting to see if there's approval, if, if I should keep tap dancing or if I should move to a different style of Yes. <laughs> Jenny. Sure. Okay. When I checked in, I noticed, well, actually I, we, before we started the IFS convo, I was bonding with Tara over uh trash television and I just felt an immediate <laughs> ease. So mm. I, I, I actually feel really excited to, to have, I was already excited, but I, I actually feel quite at ease, which is different than when we, when we usually go into podcasts, I feel that, that, uh, that nervousness. And now I feel kind of more comfortable. Great. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking like, it's probably is a lot more comfortable when you talk about something that's sort of, it's like the, my candy is Vanderpump rules. And so we talked about something so like stupid mm -hmm. <laughs> that, yeah. that like that also people are like, that's their guilty pleasure. And, you know, 
in contrast to something like internal family systems and the conversation we're about to have, I feel like that's a very soft entry. And maybe mm-hmm. I should always talk about Vanderpump Rules before podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great gift in yeah. Vanderpump Rules that oh, there are so many gifts. It's the it is the gift that keeps on giving. It truly is. So I'm curious what what part like come comes out when it's about you know, TV and just the guilty pleasures. What parts here now? You know, honestly, the only part that's with me is like um, exhaustion, which Mm, I hesitate to tell anyone about because I'm extremely lucky. I've been on an amazing book tour. I've been meeting people all over the country. It's been an honor and fantastic and fun. And I'm like fumes, like oh, yeah. just trying to get through the last Hell week of it. Yes. And so basically all I can hear, like actually with my therapist today, we discussed like until I rest, there's really not even much work we can do. Mm-hmm. So I'm just taking a pause until I can like take a little break. Yeah. And I know that you are familiar with authentic relating as well. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate the authentic revealing of your experience. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious then if we can get right into the really important stuff, which is what is Vanderpump rules? And <laughs> I'd like, honestly, I don't know what it is, but maybe Ginny could explain it real quick. And then Tara's involvement. Yeah. Like, Oh what my God. I feel happened. like the next time I visit you and Audra, I can be your guide. and We can start. <laughs> yeah. The beginning. Yeah. <laughs> right at the beginning. Yeah. So Jenny, do you want to give a little bit of a, do you like, want me to give the Vanderpump? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just like what, I mean, what's, it, what, what is it's this? A, it's a spinoff of the, uh, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. So if you know your reality TV, Bravo lineage, that is an important. I am connection. familiar with the whole housewives, uh, right. series. Yeah. So Lisa Vanderpump, uh, owns this, uh, several restaurants in Los Angeles and she employs incredibly good looking people who are, well, I don't know, Tara, how would you describe? Uh, Volatile. (laughs) Yeah. Volatile. They've, they've got lots of parts that like to get activated and then fight with other parts in other people. Um, A lot of drinking, a lot of spray tans, a lot of pool parties. It is a world that I have never had any kind of access to, nor have I ever wanted, which is why it's so fascinating to watch. It's like anthropological. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like perfect reality TV. Oh yeah. And so Lisa Vanderpump left Beverly Hills, started her own show about the waiters at her restaurant, which is what Vanderpump rules is. And the rules is like, do, does she have a lot of rules in the restaurant or is like it that? Like Vanderpump? Okay. So uh, yeah, like rules, like they're awesome. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so Jenny, just, uh, so you click on Vanderpump so rules, you're, huge, you're watching this. There's a huge scandal that has broken out. I've never in my life had my finger on the pulse of a reality TV scandal, except this one. And it is in the, it was in the New York times. It's a huge story, oddly. Huge story. It's really spoken to the hearts and minds of America, truly. So I I turn on Watch What Happens Live, which is a a little daily show that they have about Bravo reality, because I wanted to see... uh, Actually, I was streaming it. It was a past episode where I had heard that some uh, fisticuffs had broken out between two of the Vanderpump Rules people at the heart of the scandal. And lo and behold, there is Tara bartending. They always have a guest bartender. And I was like, you're kidding. I just finished her book and we were getting ready for the podcast. And it felt truly synchronistic. And, and so I was just, I was like, well, I have to ask what it was like to bartend. Yeah. Did you put anything in their drinks? Uh, Any, any dish? What's it like in the clubhouse? Did you have it all in mind? What's this person writing about complex trauma doing on this <laughs> late night reality wrap up show? I was like, this is a woman after my own heart. The mix of yeah. the two is it's essential. It's my jam. It it's is essential. That high low of it. I mean, and I'd be the first to admit my many guilty pleasures, uh, including Vanderpump Rules. So basically, so when you're a bartender, you're obviously not bartending. So I was uh, definitely tipsy during the episode because it's nerve wracking to be on like a TV set. So what I was what I was supposed to be bartending, but was fake was spicy margaritas. And um, at one point, 
Andy asked me if I thought what I thought of one of the characters' behavior. And this is before we knew anything, before we found out about more infidelity. And I was like, I don't know. I'm honestly like on the fence, which was hard to say because she was sitting right there. Um, it was, did she break a, a girl code? Basically, oh, right. she, she was um, now, so we found out late. Okay. On We're the talking thing, about Sheena, just for those in the know. Sheena and Raquel. So uh, I say uh, Raquel kind of broke girl code. I'm waiting to see more in the season. I hang out with them backstage. They're totally cool. Everything seems fine. Um, I give them copies of my book, like the little hustler I am. I'm like, here's a signed copy. Like, why don't you read it and post it? We exchange numbers. I'm like, I'm like working it on the promotional angle. Also, I love the show. So like, I'd love to be their friends. And then it comes out that Raquel had been having an affair with one of the biggest people, the only person in a healthy relationship in the whole series. She's been having an affair for like seven months. The most beloved character, the one that's like Whoa. down to earth. Yes. So apparently Sheena hit her. That's the story in the news. And what's so funny is I was considering, I was like, do I really want to be on Watch What Happens Live? Like I've been a bartender before. Is that like, fancy enough you know i'm on this book tour and i'm talking to like fancy people is this like keeping in line and i, I was like well i love it so let me do it and oh my god best decision i've ever made because <laughs> that episode has now been watched like over and over and andy oh, yeah. Cohen holds my book up like multiple times so yes he does <laughs> well i'm case in point i have don't ever watch that show the watch what happened lives i don't usually watch it but i i went and searched for it because I wanted to see right the moment. I wanted to see the the clues, the nuances, the body language, yeah. because it broke literally like 20 minutes later. It was so nuts. You it really was. were at it. It's like being at, I don't know, Lincoln's assassination. I mean, you really were at a critical <laughs> moment in our nation's <laughs> in American history. Well, that's well that's yeah. what I say. I actually say that. I say I was in the room where it happened. Yeah. So to quote Hamilton, the musical. Yeah. 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 Well, actually, yeah, I love that you were bartending on a reality TV show while on a tour for this really like deep book about complex trauma and eternal family systems and all this beautiful stuff. And it I just reminds me, I of course I don't remember the exact quote, but Jenny, maybe you have it. Carl Jung says something like a tree can only reach into heaven if its roots go into hell, something like that. And <laughs> I don't know that one. Oh, you don't know? All right. Yeah. So that's, I've got that image, you know. Excellent. Yeah. This book is amazing. I mean, you, mm. you really open up. I'm imagining not every single gritty detail was in there, but it sure felt like it. And I am so curious what is this like, first of all, for you to open it up like that? And now this book is everywhere and everyone can peer in to all the details. And now you are on this tour and you're going around and now talking about it all. What has this been like to open up like this? Yeah, it's interesting because um, people have asked me, oh, is it hard that like uh, it's so vulnerable? It must be hard to tell people all this. And it never even occurred to me that it should be hard or that maybe it would be hard to be vulnerable like this to the extent that I was like, should I be scared? Like everybody else keeps acting like I like would have that reaction. I didn't even think to have that reaction. So that actually um, has been very surprising. Like it didn't occur to me until, until it was out. Um, but what, you know, what's, what actually is very hard for me. And, and now I, you know, I, I go on the road and I speak about the worst moments of my life um, pretty consistently. That is not so hard because I'm typically in a very warm room. And I, I don't know if it's my imagination, but I think I've been lucky to have audiences that really feel like community. Um, and it, it's probably because like the people I'm talking to are self-selecting and I'm of that world. So it actually ends up being like very warm and people share their own stories. The part that's really very difficult is the writing. You know, that's painful. Uh, there's a chapter in the book called uh, The Hot Rabbi, where I deal with suicidal ideation. That was hell. 
that was a hellish experience to write because, you know, my books are not, I, I would not even uh, categorize them as self-help other than that they're helpful. It's mostly memoir. So, you know, to build a narrative picture where I'm like taking you to this cliff in Brentwood and how the dust is and what it looks like and how I'm feeling in my body. Like I actually kind of relive that trauma reaction every time I write anything. And I, and an author, uh, somebody, an aspiring author recently said, you know, I want to write my story. I dealt with a lot of complex trauma, but how do you do it without feeling the trauma? And like, you don't. I don't, I don't think there's a way around it. I think it, it's unfortunate that that's how it has to be done. But I'd also say that once since it's in a book and, you know, my first book by yourself, the effing lilies, you know, is over 200,000 people have bought it. Each person in that 200,000 has dispersed the burden I had. That's really how I feel mm, about it. Is Wow. They've taken a piece of it and it doesn't even feel, first off, that book doesn't feel like it's mine. Um, I feel like I, was able to tap into something that other people felt and just, I could probably articulated it in a very, uh, you know, in my way, that's what I did. I articulated a more universal thing in my own way that people like at, at that moment, they were ready to hear it. But what they did for me is took parts of the burden away. And so if anything, it's really healing. It's not cathartic in the writing of it. It's not cathartic in that it's out there. It's actually for me more about community. That if you read that book, you are in a conversation with me and take a little bit of the pain away from me. Mm, wow. Well, I'm curious with one of the things I've noticed with authentic relating. And so just to catch listeners up, Tara is also familiar with authentic relating. Maybe it's going to come in the third book. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get to hear about it. But one of the amazing things about the practice of authentic relating, which we've talked about on this podcast, is that when we open up and share difficult and vulnerable things, it often softens other people and it just makes more space. And uh, yeah, this idea that we get to share the burden. Um, so I'm curious if in the light of authentic relating, if, if um, all of this sharing of your own detail, of your, of your own life, does it resonate with your authentic relating experience as well? Yeah, this one I have a complicated answer and kind of feeling about, which is, so I only write things, first off, that that happened at least a year ago, so that at least have processing time of one year. So I don't write something that's like, as much as the book seems raw, there are rawer things. Mm. And I waited, I waited because I wanted some perspective. And at the same time, I really only write things that I think are universal. If it's something really specific to me, if the theme, the topic is too specific to me, I won't write it. And so I never really think about it in terms of authentic relating because it's more like I'm writing a story, a universe, like I have to re really think it's universal in order to write it. Um, and it's not for anyone else. It's not me. Like, it's funny, right? Like the book ends up being a conversation, but when I first write it, it's just, this is what I need to say. This is me. I don't want any interference. Nobody can tell me what to do. Of course, I have an editor who I'm constantly working with, but it's really not about me being in relationship to anybody else at that point when I'm, when I'm writing it. And then when I'm out, you know, there's stuff I don't include in the book because it is really, because there are things that feel way too personal to put in a book. And I actually got that advice from Glennon Doyle. I was in a car with her, was lucky enough to, I had a speaking engagement um, where I was moderating for her. And I asked her that question, like, how do you know if something is an overshare and like a pity party about myself or an interesting thing, like an interesting memory or interesting idea? And she said, it's, she said she never faces that. It's always, does this feel universal? So that's where I learned it, you know, because I really, I do believe that there is a kind of um, dumping you can do on people. Like we all know our friend who overshares and it sucks. And we're just like, all right, that's like a lot. It's real. And like, I don't want to do that. So that, that's sort of how I, I deal with it. Yeah. Does it feel universal? It yeah. sounds like it it relies on an intuition of knowing what feels universal. And then I also just can hear about the magic of the of creative transference. When you create something, it takes on a life of its own. And 
gets transferred out to a, a wider audience or a person or people and uh, something a completely different part of the process gets to unfold, it sounds like. That's com- completely right. I don't own that book. That book does not belong. Neither of these books belong to me. Um, they belong to everybody else. And what's ironic about writing something universal is you have to write as specifically about you as you can. Like the details all have to be super specific, entertaining, grab you. But the truth has to be something that we can like all relate to. Um, and it's like that way in comedy, you know? like a TV show to be excellent. Like some, you know, I'm thinking of like Broad City. They're talking about stuff everybody kind of knows, but with their details. It's like universal and then like microcosm, here's my little world. So there's definitely a lot of like tug between the universal and the individual. I can hear the words of my AP English teacher, Mrs. Dunley, reverberating her advice. Specify, specify, specify. And I was like... I never forgot that. <laughs> what did you say her last name was? Dunley. Oh, okay. Well, my AP English teacher was Miss Dunn, who said something very similar. So I was wow. like, wait a minute. <laughs> Man, if you guys were in AP English together. I know. I know. I think we were in different states, but clearly there was something synchronistic happening. Yeah, yeah. it's really good advice. I mean, I never forgot it, you know, and it's, it's absolutely true. So, Tara, the title of your book, of course, is Glow in the Effing Dark. We'll, we'll just say that. The book is about like recognizing the glow that we all have inside. And so I'm curious there. I, I'm just imagining somebody listening to this and is like, yeah, I don't feel the glow inside. I'm not feeling the glow. I don't see the glow. I don't think there's a glow there. Where do I even start? Yeah, one of the number one things I've heard. So I wrote Lilies. It came out three years ago, which means I've had the pleasure of being in conversation with people for three years about their own lives, what they'd like to tackle. Um, and the number one thing I've heard is I don't trust myself. I, I don't think I have an essential self. I think my essential self got messed up when I was a kid. And so now it's unreliable. And, you know, the thing that I really try to impart to people is that it's not possible to mess up your essential self, that glow self. Um, And you don't even have to like, it's not like a mind trick. It's scientific. I I tell this story, this first chapter of the book about how I was laid off from my job, which was my identity. I was an executive at Comedy Central for like 12 years or something like that. It, you know, it was so inherent to my personality that uh, when I was introduced to be Tara Schuster, Comedy Central, like it was my married last name. And it also was like my triumph over um, a mass direct disaster childhood of neglect and psychological abuse. So it was like my thing to be like, you see, I did it. I made it. I'm not weird. I'm even better than you because I work in Hollywood. You know, it was this total mask and distraction and magic trick. And once I didn't have it, my darkest traumas came to the surface. You know, it was the pandemic. I was alone. I had no family, no partner, now no job. And I've been working since always. There's never been like a summer or something where I chilled, you know, always had a regimented schedule. And so these traumas came to the surface. And instead of like sitting down and um, reflecting upon them, I was like, I need to make meaning. I need to be productive. Like, let me productivity my way out of this. I Googled, how can I help in the 2020 election? Because that was like the biggest thing at the time. It said, you can help register voters in Arizona. And wham, just like that, I grabbed my Vitamix and I was off to live in Flagstaff, Arizona. And on the road, I had the worst dissociative episode of my life, like truly awful. Like all my insides like wanted to jump out. And that actually felt like it would be more comfortable than how I felt at that moment. And I ended up pulling over for the first time in my life for this podcast in particular, I'll say because my therapist called me and said, this is not safe. You need to pull over. Uh, and I hadn't even considered my safety before. That was, I, I never thought about is my safety important. It was always just keep overwhelming your way through life, like productivity, this push through. That's how I had lived. 
And on the side of the road, it was like extremely dark. Uh, you know, I'm in the Mojave Desert. There was very little light pollution. And I look up and I see, you know, what I can only describe as a star field all around me. And I mean, maybe that's because in LA, like we don't have stars. So anything you're like, is that a star? And someone's like, no, it's a satellite. Um, so maybe that's why they in particular really spoke to me. But one thing I remembered about stars uh, is that nobody hates stars. Nobody's like, this isn't even in the book. Nobody hates stars. Nobody's like, oh, stars have moral failings and didn't get everything to do. And it's too late for stars to achieve their dreams. We all pretty much agree stars are awesome. <laughs> and that's very good news. Yeah. I've never, I've never heard somebody say stars suck yeah. or like when I went camping and I, and I, and I looked up at the sky, oh, right? that, that sucks. Right. Can somebody please turn the stars down? <laughs> yeah. It's not something you ever yeah. do. You only complain, <laughs> I wish I could see the stars. That's, you know, and so this is extremely good news because each one of us has stardust in us, not in a, let me write this on your mug kind of way, but in a science kind of way, you know, um, most of the elements in your body, the carbon in your muscles, the iron in your blood came from stars. You are made of stars. So this thing that's awesome and that can't be disputed and that is just so magnificent is within each one of us. And when I can remember that, when I can like hold that image and even imagine the stars mm. giving me my glitter, I can feel a lot more calm because I can remember that my life is a miracle mm. when, you know, how often do we remember that, that like every day we get here, actually every day we wake up again and breathe is a huge deal. And we treat it like it's nothing. And so a lot of this is about having gratitude for this like divine spark we've been given um, and hanging on to it because we can trick ourselves in so many ways. But this was, this for me was a very solid way to, to grab onto mm -hmm. that. It makes perfect sense why internal family systems resonates then so much for you, because it's like at the core is that we have this like undamaged essence, like it, it can't be damaged. It's, it's totally perfect, totally whole. Uh, so it really resonates. And I, I, of course, have, have experienced this. I do emotional health coaching. And so I do have clients where, you know, at the beginning, it's like, oh, no, like that is that I, I, I don't have any of that. I don't I don't know what you're talking about. Totally, totally foreign. And yeah. so then the first step for you was just telling yourself, no, like this, like this is here, like I'm made of stardust. Yeah. This is this is here. Now I just got to make more space for it. It's like, this is irrefutable. There's nothing I can, I would love to self-sabotage myself, but I, I can't, I can't destroy it because it's here. Uh, I can do nothing about it. And why it might feel dimmed is all the stuff that's happened to me, all the stuff I've done, all the beliefs I have about myself, including, you know, not even the beliefs, uh, the world, it, it, if you've read the newspaper, it's on fire. It's a terrible, terrible things are happening all around us. And so if you feel afraid or anxious or scared a lot of the time, no wonder. And so the question becomes, how do we clear away all these things that dim our essential self? And in IFS, it would be called self. What, how do we clear that all away so that we can let that self shine? How do we heal that so it'll go back to its like, maybe it'll join the shine, all the muck. Maybe it'll help bring out some of our glow. That for me was a very powerful first step. The remembering, this this idea of remembering your essential self, the remembering is such an important part. That's looking for the ways we can initiate that or invite it. And when you're working with someone in through IFS, just those just a, even just a moment of self-energy, um, especially for someone who's never recognized it or felt it, just a moment of compassion and curiosity, which we identify as like a self-energy can just you can just watch bodies relax and release and breath and 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 so what's what I when I was reading your book you know there's so many great ways of just creating those little invitations to yourself that it none of us are in self energy 24/7 no what you're saying resonates like that's 100% all I'm trying to do 
I want it to be really clear that you don't have to make up someone else or blow up your life or add anything. It's actually already there. So it is a return. Um, it is a remembering. And I'm not in self-energy mostly. And self-energy for anybody who doesn't know is like your your glow, your essential self. It, it has the qualities of compassion, curiosity, courage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when you feel for me, sometimes I know I'm in self-energy when I just feel like everything's aligned and I'm doing the thing I want to do and I kind of get lost and I'm not worried about time. I maybe get there like once every two weeks. You know, this, it's like such a journey and such a, it's a, a practice of building your ability to go back to yourself and it's practice like anything. It's just, how do you form that habit? What are practical ways that you can start today? And I think in my chapter about IFS in the book, which is, it's completely storytelling. If you haven't read my books, it's like not, I'm not going to take you down a list of what IFS is. It's a story. And then uh, I give you a little thing you can do yourself. But the first time I ever felt self-compassion was through IFS, was through really honestly feeling um, my pain, my my own suffering. It wasn't until I like could actually feel how bad I felt that I was able, you know. Which takes some time when you you talked about being really hyperproductive, which is a really brilliant coping mechanism for a lot of folks who's, you know, suffered trauma. And I don't know about you guys, but as also a recovering like productivity addict, there, I have a lot of what we call self-like ob- mm. uh, parts inside. So a lot of times my therapist will be like, okay, can, you know, can you see yourself holding yourself? And I'm like, no, but I can, I can't see it through my eyes, but I can see myself. And she's like, okay, that's a helper. That's a self-like part. Let's ask her to step yeah. aside. I have like dozens of those that mm. just like to be the A plus IFS. Like I'm compassionate. I'm, I, you know, <laughs> I did it. it's not the same <laughs> as actual self-energy. That's and right. so that was a real, um, but I'm just curious about when you were talking about the productivity, did that ever bleed into the healing work that you were doing? Feeling like you had to, you're saying I'm only, you know, you're being so vulnerable and honest, which is true for all of us that we're in, we're not in self-energy most of the time. But did you feel like a pressure or did that productivity part come out around your healing? Yeah. If you read the acknowledgments, my thank you to my therapist is basically an apology for trying to rush things through because I'm always like, we're not going fast enough. Like this today was not productive. We didn't do anything. Uh, Like I always ask her, can I have an extra session this week? If you get any cancellations, you'll let me know, right? And, you know, her party line is the slower we go, the faster we'll heal. And now I know it's true. That doesn't also mean that I don't want things to happen quicker than they do. But actually, I I have felt my own soul. And that really only took two years of really dedicating myself to that, which is not a lot of time to do something that few people ever do. And I also think there's a misconception that to really do work, it has to be hard and and it has to be overwhelming. And, oh, man, I'm like digging deep and it's, you know, crushing me. Like, we don't need to be crushed. We don't need to be torn down. The world does a good enough job of that anyway. What we need is gentle, gentle healing, gentle unfolding, gentle uh, excavation. And I try to really hammer that home in the book that like, you know, I've never done, um, I don't want to mention the name actually, but they're, you know, they're like fancy San Francisco tech one week therapy thing. And we're going to tear you down and we're going to build you up. And then for $5,000 is all you need for the rest of your life. And if you know anything about an emotional journey, you're like, that's not possible. It's just, I, 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 I know how much you want to be productive. I know how much you want this to work. I too have that desire. And there's no possible way that by that in that amount of time and and um, in that kind of harshness, the brutality, I find that to be brutal to tell somebody we're going to tear you down if they're already suffering. And even if it were possible to, you know, you get like one week or even if it's five weeks, the way I think about emotional health is, I mean, it's like physical health as well. You can go to a boot camp and for, uh, you know, a month yeah. get buff and do all that stuff. And if, and then you, you got to go back home. It's, <laughs> 
you like this is a lifelong thing, man. <laughs> like exactly. every day. Then you get humbled and you you accidentally break your ankle. You know, and you're, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, yes, there is yes, no finish yes, line. You yes, know? there's and no finish line. It's, it oh is, my it's God, a there's practice no finish and a process. Yeah. I know, I always say that. It's like, it's, I feel like one of the hardest parts of my job as a therapist is disappointing people, you know, <laughs> just having to yeah. tell them, like, yeah, this isn't quick. It's no. effective. It's not quick. And uh, there is no life without some suffering. It's, yeah. it's how do we, how do we suffer? How do we want to suffer? How do we want to, how do we want to be with and tend to our, our pain? You know, for me, it's also how do we find a place of safety in ourselves as these things arise? Because I finally, finally understand that disasters, suffering, problems, I'm never going to catch a break from them. They are constant, unrelenting. And so the only answer is to find safety within myself that is not chaotic. Yes. Yeah, that's the self, right? When you can crawl inside that self that essential self, that is the safe place. And then what you were saying about self-compassion, I resonate so much with that. I trained in mindfulness-based stress reduction, been doing mindfulness for years before ever even hearing about IFS. And in all the trainings and the retreats and all this stuff, there's so much self-compassion, you know, self, self-compassion. And I swear to God, I never got it. Like it didn't yeah. matter how I, I can, I can sit on this mat till the cows come home. And I do not understand what you're talking about, self-compassion. And it wasn't until internal family systems that I was like, whoa, okay, yeah, there's a self. And then it's, it's, then it's the natural already existing compassion inside that I have for my parts when I see their suffering, when I see how hard they've worked, when I see the burdens that they've carried, when I see all the stuff that they've had to go through. And so then, yeah, this work is just making more space for that compassion. Yeah. And I, I agree. Like I thought that self-compassion was just something you wrote on the side of a yoga studio, <laughs> you know, like, actually I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Like I was like, what is that even like it's, I feel similarly about when people write love on a thing. I'm like, <laughs> cool. Like no idea what you're talking about. Can't tap into that very easily. And IFS was the first thing. It was the first time I've ever felt self-compassion um, and so I offer readers a tool that I actually developed with the founder of IFS, Dr. Richard Schwartz. Yeah, super powerful. Oh, it's loneliness is my superpower. Because I think about emotional health like physical health, I, I see that as the daily, you know, uh, push-ups and, you know, squats. It's like, you got to do this. You got to do this every day. Absolutely. Yeah. So this month we're talking a lot about embodiment in Yes Collective. And so I'm curious what sort of embodiment practices have you incorporated into your healing journey? Do you mean like being present in my body and being grounded and here? Yeah. being So it could be anything from how to be more present in your body to how to move through emotions or, or stuck feelings. There could be other things as well, like breath work or dancing, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah. What, what has worked for you? Very little. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is definitely a big part of my next exploration um, is looking into somatic healing um, because for so long I've relied on my brain to, and like, um, I did insight-based therapy, you know, where you tell a story and you're, you're trying to understand stories uh, for so long. And, you know, I also do EMDR. So the combination of EMDR and IFS, I was like, oh, not everything's just in my brain. You know, some things are, but it's not all about thoughts. And so, you know, I try to dance as much as I can. That's because that's something that really gives me a lot of life. Um, but I'm really more in the exploration zone right now. Um, but I also will say that there's a part of me that really resists it because I'm like, how much more work do I have to do? Are you kidding me? Like <laughs> I, I have written two books on this topic. I have like the best self-care rituals, coping mechanisms. I'm the best I've ever been, the most stable. Another thing and so also I, I'll reveal that. So sometimes now when people suggest things to me, I feel a huge resistance Hell yeah! because I'm not ready. I can, mm. I can like notice it in me. It's just like, okay, I know I want to do that thing. I, 
am extremely defensive if somebody, you know, and I think it's like a good note that typically like when I give advice, somebody asks me for advice where I don't, you know, like that, that I think, I don't know. I've just met so many people and they recommend something to me and I'm like, I know it's coming from a good place, right? They want to help, but I didn't ask anyone. You know, like, no, well, so just so you know, I did, I did ask you. Yo, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but I don't mean yeah. it that way. You asked a question of like, how do I, yeah, what am yeah, I doing in the space? Embodiment, yeah, yeah. No, I, I just wanted to give you full permission to just give all, all of the advice that. Oh no! Well, I I feel like I just gave a pretty like. First off, thank you for letting me give a very (laughs) honest answer. Um, But I think you know, for me, it's part of this is about knowing when what you're ready for, you know, and really being gentle with yourself about all of these practices. Like, uh, for example, meditation. I really hated. It was like get off your your little mat on the floor. Like, don't you see things are happening? Like this patchouli sucks. And it was mostly because I was so mad at myself because I couldn't, I thought I couldn't meditate. I thought I was bad at it. I would think about a laundry list, you know, what do I need to get at the grocery store? And it wasn't until I started taking, um, this actually Jewish based, uh, meditation class early in the pandemic that I realized, wait a minute, getting lost is the thing like recognizing, Oh no. Oh, I am lost. And then gently reeling yourself back is the practice. And so with all of these things, what I would say is being gentle with yourself as you experiment. So if you're experimenting with different movement practices and, and, and things, you know, to think about it more like an experiment than anything, like you don't have to do it forever. Just, you could, if you feel ready try the known reason to beat yourself up. Cause like, how could you even botch most of this? Like ecstatic dancing, like how do you botch that? <laughs> yeah. You right. know? Well, so, um, Jenny is creating a new sort of, um, somatic, uh, oh. embodiment practice out of karaoke. So I don't know, oh. Jenny, if you want to, yeah. <laughs> by the way, karaoke is my favorite thing. And the thing I do to let loose, actually, I would say that's one of my things is for sure. Totally. karaoke. Oh, that's it, so interesting. It's so embodied. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I feel really seen today, Tara. I mean, between Vanderpump rules, karaoke, <laughs> no, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about sort of the way we can lay perfectionism onto healing and, and, um, there's certain t- certain folks that are more prone to that. I think a lot of the productive folks are are prone to that, and kind of knowing that sweet spot between sort of honoring the resistance as it being it's not time. And I, I think my I'm like whatever works, do whatever works. Yeah. If that's meditation, if that's you know, I once saw a fight break out between a CBT therapist and a psychoanalyst at a, at a mixer, you know, and I was just like, you know, whatever works, like, that's great. You do you. But then also kind of knowing when to push a little bit on that resistance and say, you know, am yeah. I self-sabotage? Is there something that's keeping that's, me from... You bring up a really good point that there is a difference between the wisdom of like, I'm overwhelmed and I cannot take on another thing. And... I am um, resisting this because it's something I know somewhere in me I should do. I I remember with my own therapist, um, I have a much better relationship with my dad now than I've ever had, despite writing two books about uh, the neglect I underwent under his (laughs) caring. Um, And we started going to therapy together. But in the months leading up to it, I just said to my therapist every day, she was like, do you want to work on your dad? I was like, no, I don't. I don't. I don't want to work on it. And typically when it's something like, no, I don't like it's that strong. Like even with the somatic stuff, it's because I know I should. And there's some part of me that's like, no, I don't want to right now. Um, so it's, it, it can be either. It's like an interesting thing. And knowing the wisdom between like, am I digging my heels in just cause I'm like, being defensive or am I tired and can't take in a new practice? Yeah. Mm. I wonder too, though. Yeah. There, there might be ways of knowing the different ways that feels in your body. I can kind of tell the difference between defense and just overwhelm, you know, just that state of over, 
over overwhelmed over arousal yeah but that's yeah yeah interesting Tara, you and I connected because I'm good friends with your friend, Sophie Singer, uh, executive matchmaker. And so I'm really curious. So in this matchmaking dating world, how has your healing journey, discovering IFS, now authentic relating, how have all of these things transformed your dating life? I mean, I couldn't date. It gave me the ability to date in a healthy way. You know, I... um kept doing the same thing over and over again for like 15 years. And so I was always in a relationship, but it was always the same kind of relationship. And I always had a very predictable ending. And I took a year off of dating before I was just like, I got to stop the bleeding. Like there's a common denominator here and it's me. So let me work on this. And we focused on it in therapy. And then I met Sophie, you know, she's a matchmaker. She's fabulous. And I love her approach is very like, emotional and not so like checklisty. And she was having an event and I just immediately connected with somebody. And what's been interesting, so we've been dating two months. And what's interesting about it is now I'm like, whoa, this is how I should have been treated the whole time. Mm. I'm like, wow, I got so ground down and had such low expectations. And I'm feeling like a lot of grief and anger now about men who treated me so poorly in the past. And the anger is at myself. How could I let, how could I put myself in that situation over and over again? And that's something I need to work on. But it gave me a different vision. Like all this work coming together, I could not have dated this person in the past. I wouldn't have met this person in the past. I wouldn't have taken a year off and then decided to seek out somebody else's taste. Like with Sophie, I thought, well, it, if it's a mistake, at least it's somebody else's mistake and somebody else's take. It won't be my exact um, pattern, it's be somebody else's pattern. And um, it's, sho- it's, it's shocking. It's shocking the difference. I And now when things come up, I've had something come up today and I was talking to my therapist about it. And instead of getting reactive, instead of, you know, doing something, I'm just noticing it, you know, like, wow, I didn't throw a fit and start crying and feel like a five-year-old who was abandoned and left. No, I was like, huh, interesting that I'm having this feeling. Let me track that. Mm. So it's like, night and day difference. And now I would never go back on an app ever. I would only hire a matchmaker because the apps are, I think, real poison. I think they have really ground us down. And the same people are on the apps that have been there for like 15 years. So (laughs) you see the same people. Oh my God. Oh, there's an IFS book um, with the title you're the one you're the you've one. been looking for. Wait, yeah, you're, you're the <laughs> one you're you've, the been one waiting you've been waiting for. for. Thank you. I actually read that book um, before starting dating again. It was like uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz said, read this. And I said, okay, you're brilliant. <laughs> yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So we have three final questions that we ask every guest. And so I'm just going to... Ch- just send them to you rapid fire. So the first one is if you could put a big post-it note on everyone's fridge tomorrow morning, what would that post-it note say? You are worthwhile. You are worthwhile. Or you are worthy. Mm, Maybe you are worthy. Yeah. Yeah. And the last quote that changed the way you think or feel. It would be in Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning that it's, you know, there's, we're not put here with some meaning and some message uh, to to do something. It's we get here and then we have to make the meaning. And that has to be like a core part of our identities. That was, he also has a quote that's um, between stimulus and response, between something happening and, and what you do about it in that space, that's your freedom. Mm -hmm. And I finally understand that. And I mean, it's Viktor Frankl in the Holocaust. If he was able to do that, uh, it's on us, I think, to find that wisdom. Mm. 
Beautiful. And then the third and final question is, what is giving you hope right now? Ooh, interesting. Especially, I feel like things are particularly dark. Yep. Um, Gen Z is giving me hope because, mm-hmm. you know, I hear all the annoying stuff about them. Great. Okay, fine. And, you know, like someone had complained like, oh, the Gen Z, they don't want to work. They don't want to do their jobs. I'm like, well, maybe their jobs suck. <laughs> like maybe this whole system actually is not working for any of us. And Gen Z are just the first ones who are brave enough to say like, hey, I don't want this. Yeah. And so I think, you know, they're the first people like protesting um, climate, the climate disaster, school shootings, like they go out there and do something. So they give me a lot of hope. Mm, brilliant. Tara, thank you so much for taking time for us. This is so awesome. Your book is a gift. And mm-hmm. um, we really hope that uh, we get you to come back on for your next book. Yeah. Full conversation. Everyone thank needs you. to go and buy this book. They will, they will uh, get a lot out of it. And Obviously, if you are bartending on Watch What Happens Live again, you've got to like ping me and immediate. Justin. Oh, blast it out! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll text you. Yeah, I'm, I'm behind the bar. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. but truly, yeah. congratulations on this book. Thank you, thank you, and thank you for having me. And um, I found this conversation really enjoyable because, especially, you guys actually know the things I'm talking about, like in an expert way. You know, so it was nice to be able to engage that way. Oh, likewise. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Hope the paths cross soon. See y'all later. Bye. Bye. Hey, if you like what we're doing here at Yes Collective Podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player, share it with other parents in your life, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yes Collective is a mental health movement for all parents. So let's spread the love.